downloading UW Alumni Voices. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today in studio we've got Dick Porter, Chairman of the Australia United Kingdom Chamber of Commerce. Dick, how you doing? Yeah, very good today, thanks. Thank you so much for coming in today. Now, you spend a lot of your time in the UK, you visit back to Perth three, four times a year, and when we are walking through campus just before, you were talking about some of your days sitting in the lecture theatre and you got there was a whole group of you that watched the well, the man landing on the moon. Well, yeah, the physics, we're here in the physics building. The physics uh, lecture theatre was turned over to a li- the live broadcast of, of that time and actually it wasn't just a group of us, it was open to campus. So yeah. lots of people crammed in. I'm sure the fire officer these days would have been very unhappy. <laughs> and uh, we watched it. It was just fantastic. One of those things, you know, and because of the time difference, it was in the morning from memory here we watched it. So big cheers when he put his foot down and uh, all that sort of stuff. So That's amazing. Do you think something like that could ever happen today? Getting, uh, a, gr- getting a whole group of people around? Because, I mean, technology, I guess, has changed. We can watch everything on the phone. Bringing the masses together, something around that. No, it's a good point. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't like to guess, but uh, yeah. I mean, in those days, it was the only way to see it. You couldn't even see it on your home TV. I yeah, Because <laughs> I think TV in those days was sort of four in the afternoon till nine at night or something. So it was, uh, no. Four in the afternoon. Well, well okay. I can't remember. I mean, when Chan- I, no, maybe I'm remembering when he was even yeah. younger, but it was, uh, so just ignore that. But uh, That's all right. Now, let's look back. You, you were enrolled in UWN 1969 in a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery, but in 71, you changed to commerce. What changed? Yeah, I mean, I was studying. Uh, I studied medicine, but uh, those days you had quotas. I'd bought a motorbike and I was going home just before exams and a lady, a uh, Claremont council worker or an Edlands council worker, forgot the highway was there and drove out from the Captain Sterling Hotel at 30 miles an hour, ran into me. Whoa. And so I missed the exams. I was in hospital. And uh, because I was in the uh, missed exams, I had to go back. To f- I would have had to start again. So no. Because there was a quota, a very strict quota going through, and there was no second chances. You had to start again if you missed so uh, actually it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was rowing King's Cup at the time and the head of sports medicine here, John Bloomfield, who later set up the Institute of Sport in Canberra, was therefore supervising me. So I came out after two months in Royal Perth, with I crushed my left foot and uh, they recovered. he recovered me. He had me in this fantastic exercise regime and I rowed Cup then a few months later. So I think rather than go back, I thought, mm. oh, well, I'll enrol in commerce and then got very heavily involved in lots of things on campus and became your president. So um, what were the things that you got involved in campus? You talked uh, about Camp being for the Kids, yep. um, pretty well anything. Camp for Kids, I was, became president of Societies Council. So you just come involved in running and organising things. It was fascinating. Were you more engaged with the campus doing your commerce degree than doing medicine or was there no real difference back then? Um, I can't remember. Yeah. Sorry, um, to be <laughs> candid, I just can't remember. Yeah. That's, all, that's all right. Is that, that, is that long ago? I'm just amazed that you're saying you've got, you know, being hit by a car and then, yet yeah, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. So with doing a commerce degree, is that where you, maybe the, the entrepreneur in you came out? No, actually, I was a lousy student. Um, and wow. so, but becoming guild president was probably the best thing because you're then running, then the guild was at, at the Hackett end and the, I was the first president occupying the current guild building. Uh, and so we had a big catering staff. So you're really then enveloped in this commercial organisation, which was interesting. And I'd always thought my family were farmers and medicos and they were anti-business. So the idea of being a business person was anathema to them. <laughs> they thought I ought to become, and probably the Camp for Kids stuff, uh, a, a hospital administrator would have been their ideal of a perfect role for me. Interesting. So to get into the Guild and see the op- 
you know, if you run an honest commercial organisation, which the Guild really was and remains, um, then you can create huge value. And then uh, I took off to Europe at the end of my term. I only meant to go for a couple of weeks, but I flew up during the Yom Kippur War by pure chance. So it took wow. a, a long time in 73 to get up there. Uh, we were diverted up over Russia, not dissimilar to what's going on with Iran at the moment. Oil went from 90 cents to $15, and I was in and so I was then teaching and all sorts of things up there, you know, to make a living, learning how to cook, so I didn't starve. And um, we'd set up a travel business here, the Australian Union of Students Travel. They were supplying NUS, the British Student Travel, who went broke, as along with 92% of the European travel industry. Um, wow. And so everything changed. And so that was an opportunity. NUS Travel went broke, bought an office, taught myself travel. Far out. That's amazing how <laughs> from start to finish there. Now, SDA Travel, which we kind of touched on there, the world's largest student and youth tra- travel company started in 1976 with you as the CEO and director. So what was the motivation to starting SDA well, Travel? Well, I wasn't I wasn't CEO director, actually. Then the company in Australia, uh, we had the, that company went broke in 77, the sure. year later, uh, with their assets and the company, which we founded in London in 76, we then put together STA Travel in 79 by combining those two. So we had, if you will, the iteration is that. And it was um, the motivation. It came out of this, well, even predated, but after the Second World War, when IATA was formed, there were four sections left out. Uh, Marine, uh, which was ship's crews because it was too hard. The Catholic Church kept missionaries. Uh, governments kept military mm-hmm. and students because the world decided they didn't want any more little Hitlers. They wanted to have young people moving back and forth yep. globally to avoid that. And uh, so there was a whole infrastructure around that which we saw an opportunity in dominating, which we did. It's clearly important to travel and experience different cultures for not only just students but graduates itself. Yes, I mean, I'm a great believer. In, I, I think people just don't understand. They're born in a society like Perth. You're born into WA... You, you are amongst the wealthiest, healthiest, best educated people on earth. People here don't recognise it because mm. their neighbours are all the same. Yep. You get out in a true sense, you get out and look at the world and you think, actually, we are hugely blessed and we're in a position where we can create enormous value. There's no point competing head-to-head with somebody who's making something. Mm. Compete, think about where you create value and if you do that, then it's hugely exciting. Whereas you stay home, a lot of very successful people, I'm not belittling them, but there's another role here, another thing here. So getting out just creates enormous... You can create enormous value. We are so, so well-based in the world. Did you get, get out and travel much during your time here at UWA? No, not at all. And in fact, I got I would never... That's why I thought two weeks I'll get bored up here and come home. And I found <laughs> a world that just blew my socks off because it was obvious that the grounding I had was uh, just uh, so many opportunities. And... You didn't what a lot of Perth people do, moving to the UK. So what was the motivation about moving to the UK? And, you know, you do come home three to four times a year, but UK is home for you. Well, I've never decided to stay. I'm a proud Australian. I've <laughs> yep. got an Australian passport. I've never taken another nationality. I never will. Uh, and what you do is you just get such a momentum uh, of stuff that you can do. And a lot of it creating value, you think, for Australia, for Australians. You know, you mentor a lot of them and so on. And at no point can you draw a line and say, now I'll go home, because you, you actually have to turn your back on it all. And it's, it's a big drag in a mm. way, but, but it works. And, you know. But in the UK, we've got a really strong UWA alumni network there. Uh, Dave McKinley is heavily involved there as well. How important is for graduates, not only in the UK, but globally, to, I guess, connect with one another? 
Uh, it's a good question. I mean, the UWA alumni in the UK is the best, and we, you know, we founded that about 15 years ago, and we set out to, with a very strategic goal, of making it so we have an annual event, for example, with the main top 10 domain universities that are in the world's top 10, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, and others, and the partner universities, and we bring over Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor, hopefully heads of schools, and we have an intersection where we get somebody at the level of a Nobel Prize winner, to t hopefully from UWA, to talk about an area of science or something like that. The advantage being you then talk in the same room. These universities who are up there in UWA seeking to be in that thing exchange views and understandings which then creates opportunities. Yep. So um, the advantage, if I give you a long answer, is by engaging with alumni but at a high level, not at an operational level, you just create opportunity for yourself. You begin to think differently, you can see value for yourself, you just train yourself to mm. just see opportunity in the long term. Because the world, 10 to 20 years, is a much more interesting place to be. Mm. Even though you get out of bed every morning and got to feed your kids and get them to school and all the rest of it, actually mixing that with a long-term view, uh, because then t you turn around 10, 15 years later and you think, bloody hell, I've, it, look what we've achieved. And, and that's a real opportunity. And it does provide those networking opportunities. Now, Absolutely. what was networking like back when you did arrive in the UK back in the 70s. Was it, is it different or is it Completely still... Completely different. Yeah. So there was something, nobody knows about it now, students today don't know, there was something called post-restant. So the way you got your mail, you would go, in a, it was the Australian Embassy in Australia House, you'd, you'd go and collect your mail there and you'd go to the bank there two or three times a week because they, that was the only way you could get your money and mm -hmm. that's where you'd pick up your mail. Uh, if you wanted to telephone home, uh, usually you had to book from memory in an emergency. You could do it the same day, but say for Christmas, you'd book two months ahead, a slot of three minutes. Wow. Hugely expensive, and that would be the way you chatted. So it's a very different way of, and even, you know, in, if you're in London, you went to a lot of bars and things where you knew Aussies were hanging out yep. or rest, because there was no other way of communicating. Hmm. There was no mobile phones. There was no other method of communication. So Australia House had all the Australian newspapers a week late, you could go in there and read and mm -hmm. meet people and then you intersected in those ways. Today, what a different world. It is a different world. <laughs> now let's talk about you in, in the in the business sector side of stuff and you know, one of the questions we've got here is, what is business leadership to you? But first thing I wanna ask is, do you consider yourself a leader in, of business? Um, I consider myself a business person and um, I know that I've been effective at it, so I suspect in leading the Australia-UK chamber, mm. I'm clearly leading a strategy there, which is yep. an intersection between Australia and the UK. And under that, we've got those all those businesses mm. but who choose to join, but I'm not leading those businesses. Those yep. businesses are very much, you know, BHP, Rio, the banks, all yep. those guys, the startups, a lot of tech startups and mm. FinTech and others, they're leading. What we're trying to do is position a, 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 a way of which they can develop real value yeah. at one level of their business. So what does a business leader look like then with all those that you just touched on there? Um, I think clarity about purpose. I mean, I, I'm a bit odd uh, that I don't care too much about, I, mean, I think the outcome of a great business, shareholders are going to win. I love private companies rather than public companies because public companies, sometimes the shareholders get too much credit. Sure. Um, so a, a true business leader thinks about a true proposition for their customers which creates real value. If that happens, then you will have a very loyal client base and you will create something which is uh, great for, and the people that matter are the community you're working in, clearly, the uh, 
customers are hugely important. Your staff are hugely important. Um, your suppliers, believe it or not, if we come to travel, are hugely important, making sure that. So if you work for all those and you get achievement, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll do very. So that's what I like about a great business person, somebody who thinks like that, not somebody who can talk or talk up the share price. I'm not yeah. sorry. that I mean, I'm fine. I'm very yeah. impressed with those people, but it's not my way of doing it. You know. So what if you know a young graduate came up to you and you know they're an aspiring business leader or you know they're just starting out you know what will help them to ensure they have success uh good question again um i think you've got to focus on what the on what you really get what you what your real strengths are so the, the immediate strengths would seem to be to get into a big corporation and climb the ladder mm-hmm. for a lot of people actually I think I'd do that back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may do it and then get moved up there and play that game up there. But if you want to set out and become a real leader in your own way, I would try to build skills about, um, you know, real skills about what you can, uh, and they may seem really odd, you know, but real skills about understanding customer movements, understanding how you deliver real value. So when they, at the end of, it's not when they walk out of your shop, it's when they come back from having used your product, mm. they're fully satisfied. If you can figure that out, then you will, I think, when you come home, be much more effective. What, what are the skills you would be looking at into it for someone to get? Somebody who can be, is operationally fine, yep. uh, but more importantly, can look, think ahead and can talk over the horizon. So can talk about where they think over the horizon where they think their vision is. And mm-hmm. over the horizon, I mean, I like doing it over 10, 20 years now, but I, you know, it could be one to three years. Yep. That's good. And is that probably the, the climate we're in at the moment? The world and technology is changing so rapidly. These five, 10, 15 year plans, are they becoming redundant? No, not at all. Okay. I mean, if you think about, uh, think about FinTech, we've got a large number of FinTech companies, British FinTech companies establishing here and vice versa mm-hmm. on the back of the FinTech bridge, yep. which the chamber was involved in. And that's saying, look, the established mainstream financial industry is has been built up over 100 years. Its structure is uh, built around a core that is quite inflexible. Where are the opportunities to build a very flexible relationship with the end user of that mm. product rather than the infrastructure? Ultimately, those infrastructures, the very stolid, instru- are going to break down. Sure. And they're going to be built, um, and the banks and the other financial service companies will acquire what you've what you've started, mm-hmm. or you'll become one of those in your own right. And that's, I think, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So you don't need to think about that. I mean, that's to me, so that is an unchanging thing. You then work back where you fit in and people who are moving, even simply, there are some great Aussie companies. For example, just something simple like moving money immediately with a fixed exchange rate and a very small transaction fee uh, around the world, they're hugely successful because they just eat eat the financial, the established banks who have got to drill into their mainframes, yep. go and talk to someone about what, you know, so those opportunities are there. And Do they're there in every field. And do you see some of these opportunities go, oh, I wish I got into this earlier? Um, for me, the one at the moment that excites me is uh, the problem of carbon and uh, global warming, you know, and which I think is, you know, we, we, we're dealing with the infrastructure mm-hmm. side of Britain and Australia. You know, it's a 50-year solution and you really can, get, that's obvious. So I would now, I mean, I we talk about it lately, you know, there's a number of businesses I would seek to set up that really, 60, I think it's over 60% of the problem in the west is in established buildings for example and you have to you can't bulldoze all these cities you're gonna have to trans so i would think about transition down at that level right mm-hmm. yes at the macro policy fine but actually mm-hmm. it's still going to take 
So, boy, there's business opportunity there. That exciting. So, for example, mm. that excites me. Yeah, I'd do that. Completely so different from travel. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm keen to learn more about your role as the chairman of the Australia United Kingdom Chamber yep. of Commerce. So, is there a, is every day different for you? What does what does the day look like for you? No, yeah. No. So, what happened there was Brexit. We had this. I was chairing the Australian business community, which was very much a networking community of you can imagine all of the above. Brexit vote happened. Uh, commerce. There was no trade negotiations from '73 until the Brexit decision. Um, it was in Brussels and New York particularly. It's now back in London. So we changed the business community into the Chamber of Commerce and went out and began to draw in British businesses mm -hmm. in all sorts of areas. So it's about a 60-40 Australia, British mix now of the big businesses. And there it's, uh, so, if, so what I do is I build and mentor a team. So I've got a CEO and a team. Well. Um, and I make sure that, and I've got the CEOs come out of trade and if you work in trade and government, you don't, you're, not, you're fantastically skilled, but actually you, you have to run it as a business. We run about 50 or 60 events a year, and you motivate people and to get it done. So my job is to coach and mentor that team to achieve what they need to achieve to give us great visibility, and it works extremely well. And, and I, I get wheeled out by them. So they'll wheel me out to, you know, at the level of ministers, prime ministers, for example, when they want something done, but they do the work because my job is to get them really... And they're firing. They're great. Yeah. They're a fantastic team. Now, if someone's listening to this, I would love a job like that or an opportunity like that. How does an opportunity like that get presented to somebody? Because I'm not. I'm assuming it's not somewhere someone can apply for these things on Seek. My predecessor was um, very senior. He runs one of the main public companies in London, and he'd been very senior in BHP and other Australian mm -hmm. businesses. Still is. Yeah. Uh, I was well known in the community. They talked around the board. Uh, they asked me to join the board, and then that includes all the mains you could imagine the players. Mm. And I was on the board a couple of years. Then they he wanted to find a replacement, so talked around the board about who those possible candidates could be. Yep. And the board confirmed that they would like me to be the uh, the new chair. So I took up the chair role about six years ago, seven years ago. So I guess I've been on it about ten years, and my turn will come. You know, I'll be looking for somebody in the next couple of years to. Uh, from the board to draw it in. So I broaden the board yeah. and make sure I've got a good talent pool. Do most people that join a board, is the, a lot of people's end goal to become the chairman or no. is there people just simply happy to be there and they don't want to be in No, they want a network. So, yep. um, you know, the new head of Qantas Europe, for example, uh, she's, she's terrific and having her as a director helps Qantas intersect with uh, quite quickly, the head of Qantas, who's come out of Sydney, to intersect quite quickly with the community and understand the strategic issues facing industry. Okay. At the same time, can give a huge return mm. by inputting what how they see uh, that whole ship marking sh uh, shifting market. So they contribute, but they gain. And so, if there's no win-win on each side, you know, they give and mm. take. For, then you don't go on board. If it's a one-way <laughs> street, forget about it. Now I'm going to put you in the spot. Uh, what's the has there been a board position that you never really expected to get into but was probably the most enjoyable position you've ever taken on? Oh, gosh. Uh, I do have rather a lot. I'm on, <laughs> I've got 15 roles at the moment, so there's, uh, you do run a lot. Um, I mean, I like all challenges. I mean, the STA travel one was fascinating, but I love taking something on where you can really build something over three, five, ten years mm. from where it is to where it's going to be. Mm. And I've done that in... An, in a number of cases, um, the one which I love, there's a company called Top Deck Travel, which mm. we bought, which was um, a train wreck. Um, in fact, I had the guys who founded it 
in the mid 70s, um, we helped uh, sell their tours, and in fact, the wife of uh, she'd later married him. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, married uh, the founder of um, Top Deck, and then they saw what I was doing. They sold Top Deck in '83 and came down and founded a company called Flight Center, which is of course global. So, and they are the main principal share. He's CEO of Screw, yeah, and right. his wife Jude. So Jude was the one who was selling on my counter, who was selling tours. Hugely successful. We bought that back in 2003 as a train wreck. I went in as a share, four of us as shareholders, I chaired it. And um, it, that was a fantastic regeneration. So that was great. You know, you spend 10, 11 years building it back, so yep. it's absolutely dominant. Flight Centre then bought it from the shareholders. Now, the and that was exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Because there you take a train wreck and turn it into something that's absolutely the watchword for the industry again. You, you, you must be pretty proud of that effort, though. Completely everything yeah. I do, I'm proud of. I'm proud of the people. It's not me who does it. It's the mm. people in those industries who do it. I create some value by helping with vision and so on. But I mean, in the top deck case, it was uh, the CEO, and yeah. you know, it was just fantastic, just immeasurable, and the team. I want to touch on with the board position. Has there been many people that have been on boards that just shouldn't belong there? They're there for all the wrong reasons. Because um, I'm asking that question because there's a lot of young professionals out there that are always eager for board positions, but sometimes they're, it's more about just putting it on the CV rather than having an uh, impact in their community. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. There's only one person running the place, and that's the CEO, yeah. and you want board people to create value for you. Board people are going to think they're bigger than the CEO are a problem, but so long as you're in there and you're really helping the CEO and team achieve what the objectives are... Yeah. If you ever think the CEO is not doing your job, then you ought to move to get rid of them or sure. you ought to leave. I mean, it's pretty straight. To me, it's a very straightforward thing. And then you um, get on with it. And so if you're there and not creating value for the team or so on, then you shouldn't be there. So it's really about that. And your skill set needs to be there to yep. create that value. So other people on boards who are a waste of space, uh, not for long when I'm around, I'm afraid, just <laughs> simply because I like boards to be part yep. of the solution, not a weight around the ankles. You t touched on about having to ask a CEO, have you ever had to ask one? What's the process and, and mindset doing such a thing? Yes, you do. I mean, particularly, so with STA Travel, when we were growing it globally, uh, you were often um, acquiring businesses, uh, particularly um, after September 11, we acquired the main global competitor, and that was about sorting out. We had to run, I ran a Chapter 11 in America and a thing called an examinership in Ireland, and, they were in 40 countries, so doing that. So there you had to make some tough decisions. Yeah. But you do it for the bulk of the business. You don't do it about the individual. You do mm. it about the quality of the bulk of the business. Yep. And if you do that and you're honestly about it, then the people are along for it. And it's tough. Yeah. But you try to be as fair as possible. But ultimately, you're you know, if you're in a community, and I'm talking about a community, not just the company, I'm talking about your customers, your suppliers, the people who rely on that business as well, particularly the employees, mm. you've got to be honest to all the above. And if you do that and you do that well, then some dis tough decisions have to be taken. Is there a lot of pressure in the, you're in, you know, you said about 15 roles at the moment. Is there a lot of pressure for on in all those roles or are they kind of all fluctuate? They all fluctuate. Yeah. I mean, it uh, depends where you're at. At the moment, there's been a huge amount of pressure in the last week or so about the fires because... Mm -hmm. Uh, we're beginning to run a lot of events in the UK and the difficulty is um, none of them can get tax. Uh, for example, the UWA charity is an educational charity so it can't get involved in fire 
transference because of the way the tax rules work. Which sure. Is fair enough. So yeah, we're working incredibly hard on that, and that'll settle down again. Um, so it, it depends on what's going on, and it's the same in business. In business, you can have all sorts of events that you know, if, a, if something disruptive happens in the marketplace, mm. then you suddenly get thrown into it hook, line, and sinker. You just got to be ready to deal with it. So with your career, was there a turning point that was a pivotal turning point in your career success? Um, oh gosh, uh, no, it was evolutionary. I think you've got to. I don't think you know. STA Travel, when we founded it, we were on Telex which nobody now even knows what that means. The profound change came with faxes in the 80s, probably about a decade on, when you could get information moved instantly. Mm -hmm. And then computerization, the first, you know, we had regional computers and then global. So once that was organized, then you could globalize the business. So the first time really the company was run globally was 91 when I took over all the global operations in 91, because until then, you know, you couldn't, you, it, was a, it was a carrier pigeon getting information up from the southern hemisphere. So you had to have quite dispersed management. It was yep. more difficult. From 91, I ran it globally. So that was a big transition because then I could get on with growing it from, um, I think we were in about, by then, about 20 countries from guests, moving it up to yep. 100 countries quite quickly. Did yeah. you ever have a mentor during your time? Because yeah, at the man- moment, mentoring is such a big thing here at the University of Western Australia for students as well as al- alumni. Was it a case for you in the 70s that you had a bit of a mentor, even even at university? Yes. I mean, always. I had, um, you know, sometimes they were lecturers. I was fortunate being guild president. I had uh, good people on Senate. There was, uh, I remember one of the Kalises was there. You know, there was a number of things. And they were really fine people. You talked to them. Um, VCs were very, very good often on the, you know, on the way through. I know mm-hmm. I'm tr- speaking of all the of the GPs and the guild presidents I've talked to about that. But then later on in business, I mean, when we set up, there was some very fine people in the travel industry, who older men, who, you know, well past now, well dead. But they were just terrific. They just talked to you about the, and cut through the rubbish and make you understand what the real value was in the business rather than... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and so all the way through, I think I've had fine uh, support and mentorships, you know, and I'm happy to ask yeah. people, for, and I give it. You do a lot of mentoring, no doubt, I reckon, th- as a leader in the Friends of the UW and the UK group. Uh, what drives your involvement with the university in the UK and in particular with the business school through the Ambassadorial Council? Well, it, it's this point I started with, that we are an extraordinarily fortunate group of people. Uh, and um, it, I like Western Australia being, I'd like it to be much more of a leading role in the world and particularly in the area we're in, which mm-hmm. is the bulk of the world's population. Yep. But we can do that not by competing, but by really by real collaboration and getting people out to understand that UWA is the leading educational institution, and it has the opportunity to offer real leadership in the community about how West Australia is positioned. And I like that sort of civilized, small c civilized behaviour of um, what UWA's role in Western Australian society, and therefore mm-hmm. Western Australia's role in the region we're in and globally. I mean, uh, I have a very good friend. We have a very good friend who was one of the trustees who died last year, head of the lung, a uh, year before last now, head of the Lung Institute, was an exemplar of that, became leader globally in that, and um, uh, was, in, was uh, you know, a, an example of what can be achieved, and I would encourage more and more of that. So what I do with the alumni group in London, and particularly in the business school, is to encourage people to come, have a look at it, look at opportunities, come and talk to us. I'm happy mm. to mentor and coach people, and so just give them a vision about what their opportunities are. So if someone wants to approach you, you know, be it 
business mentoring, what's the best way to approach someone like yourself? Because they might, you know, go on LinkedIn and see your CV and go, wow, I don't think I should even reach out to this person. What do you, what do you say to people like that? Yeah, I mean, I've got a certain capacity. So uh, send me, uh, just send an email to the email of the alumni group, which is pretty straightforward. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we will see, off it, we'd go back quite quickly and just say, well, yeah, we yeah. think this person might be more relevant for you. We've got quite a good community. Yeah, can you share with the listeners who's involved in that community there in London? Um, well, the trustees are um, a group who are there for... Um, uh, I, giving names is probably going to be not too relevant, but if I just talk about their broad roles, their broad roles are people have gone up there and done similar things. Yep. I think they've stepped off and become very successful up there. And not as I mean, I've been a long stay. I've, I've been on holiday there, as I say, for a long time. But I mean, uh, so, but many of them are there and creating value. But also in the broader community, we have quite a lot of alumni events up there. In the broader community, you've got people who have been very successful at establishing their own businesses, often in financial services, in science, in uh, healthcare, mm -hmm. and others. And so there's a wide range of people up there who are UWA graduates or UWA alumni who are um, engaged and they like the intersection with the alumni group. And so, you know, and I can't be specific more yep. than that. I mean, there is a, a very wide range of very fine people who Western Australia is rightly proud of and who mm. create enormous value for West and for Australia and Western Australia. When alumni get together, are there some favourite stories or consistent stories that come out over the years from, from your time? Like uh, Sometimes, yeah. I mean, look, it depends on your age. I mean, the uh, people in the, you know, it's interesting. Every decade there's memories and those memories vary. And then the people from the decade two or three away from those memories are yep. always astonished to hear them. So there's some <laughs> terrific stuff we talked about. The one as we were walking down here opposite the physics is a lovely growth in the middle of the... Uh, Great Court, and uh, there was a tug of war when I was at university. But you, the engineers and the lawyers always had a tug of war, and it was during the Vietnam War. And one of the uh, returnees, I think he was an engineer, had a couple of smoke bombs he'd hidden in the Great Growth there, and he let them off at a certain time. And the engineers didn't know it was coming. Oh, sorry, the, the lawyers didn't know it was coming. The engineers did. So the engineer, the lawyers ran for cover, and the engineers won the tug of war. So. Uh, you know, there was some great luck around, <laughs> I think, all the way through. And, uh, you know... Yeah, I don't think something like that could, they could get away with that today. I'm sure the anti-terrorism police, everyone who didn't exist then, would have some say about it, or the army or somebody, who knows. But yeah. it's, it's a very different world I, now. Is there, is there a moment of your time at uni that just sticks out to you? I mean, we've already shared a couple of memories, but is there some something that you just go back and go, oh, like that was the time of my life? Good heavens. Oh, there <laughs> were so many. I mean, there really were so many. I mean... Uh, when she's still on the Senate, Sue Boyd was president and we did the first sit-in of Perth up on Stirling Highway, close Stirling Highway, to get the pedestrian tunnel yep. put in. That was a landmark. I remember the feeling of real, of an important change that people thought was necessary and it was a real breakthrough. And, of course, Vietnam itself. Uh, Camp for Kids, I mean, the phenomenal stuff that was done by in those camps for those very disadvantaged children was hugely effective i thought and uh, that was a landmark there's no doubt so there's a mix of them and my you know rowing i'm so you know i rode uh, into varsity and other things i mean you know anything when you you know we've talked about this a bit mm. before the interview but the uh, anything of a sporting nature where you're really part of that is just a land it's just something you remember for life you can't ever separate from have you got some intervarsity stories that you can share 
Oh, no, no, we didn't ever win next. I mean, then you had to take your boat. It was long. We had to get on the yep. train and you'd spend five days on the train going over there. And then I remember we rode our heats from memory in thick woolen jumpers because it was snowing in Lake Wendouree. And for a Perth boy, that was quite a <laughs> landmark. But, uh, but it was good fun. Yeah, it was great fun. That's fantastic. Now, that's all the time we've got, Dick, but we always end every interview with asking people this one question. If you could give advice to a first-year UWA student, what would it be? Uh, don't underestimate what you've got, you know, who you are and what you've got, and just really set out. Just do well, as well as you can in your university time. Intersect with people, but it's not just about your academic mm. progress. It's about understanding how to interact with people and the opportunities in the world, and then when you get out into the world, I think you'll be astonished. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for this, Dick. Really, absolutely fascinating. And everyone... If you're living overseas, especially those in the UK, contact the alumni office today because there's alumni here to help you as well as enjoy the events. But Dick, thank you so much. Safe flight home. Thanks very much, Josh. No, good.